You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Quintin to 20. And in the Church Bible is on page 58. So let us read. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of this command and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. That is the word of the Lord. Now let's... Great to be with you this morning. This is the best morning of the week, at least it is for me, Sunday morning, best morning of the week. I get the privilege of uh, meeting together with you guys, praising the Lord together, and uh, I have the, the singular privilege of opening up God's Word week to week, which I, I really do count as one of the greatest privileges. Um, Today's the best morning of the week. The best night of the week is Friday night. It's family movie night for us, and that automatically makes it the best night of the week. The kids are done with school. Everybody's... uh, I've had the day off. Friday's my day off, so we all come together and just splay ourselves out on the couch and uh, watch movies and eat bad food, which is good food, and uh, it's the best night of the week. Um, it can be an annoying night, though, and uh, by that I mean I can be annoying, because I've, I, if you want to do some counselling with my family later, I'd appreciate it, because I'm one of those irritating people who can't just sit and watch a movie. I've got to do, like, the DVD commentary of the movie as if I'm the, like the director of it, and, and this is irritating. Not for me, I love it, but for my family, it's very irritating. Um, I'm really fascinated by story and by plot structure, and so I will, like, I, I, I will all the way through commentate on where I think we are up to in the story, like, kids, is this, uh, like, is this a turning point? Or is this, are we at the crisis yet? They all know that. Oh, Dad, this is the crisis. Because every story has a crisis, right? Is this the climax? Um, and are we coming to the resolution? Like, all of this happens all of the time, and, um, and it's irritating. But for me, it's interesting. And all stories have this kind of, at least in, in, the, in Western civilization, we have this kind of, 
um, structure of plot that involves markers, involves turning points, climaxes, crises, resolutions. And in the Gospels, you see this. Um, there are very particular markers that are meant to let us know that something significant is happening or this is a new kind of strand of the story. We saw this in Holy Week, remember? We made a big deal on Palm Sunday that Jesus in the Gospels turns his face towards Jerusalem. He starts walking towards Jerusalem. This is his death march. This is the, this is the, the, um, the first steps on the way to the cross. You get it in Matthew's Gospel at the Sermon on the Mount. You have this marker and it's in before, before our section that we've looked at in this series, but it's important to know in chapter 4 verse 17 you get this marker where Matthew lets you know this is where Jesus' teaching ministry begins and this is really where the Sermon on the Mount has its origin, has its foundation. So in 4.17 this is what Matthew says of Jesus. From then on Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. This is the first and major point that Jesus makes in his teaching ministry. It's unsettling for people who think that Jesus is just the hippie, you know, like weed smoking, I just want to give everyone a cuddle kind of guy. He, he, he is gentle, but he's also the guy on the street corner saying repent. He's that guy. Uh, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. That is, in me, God is present. And because that's the case, because I am inaugurating this kingdom, I am inviting you into it, and in order to come into it, you must first repent. Turn away from your own agenda and come on board with God's kingdom and gender. Repent the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, I want you to, it, 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 actually throughout the 20 weeks or so that we spend in the series, I want you to do this, but particularly here this morning, I want you to assume the character of a first century Jew, because this is who we are listening to Jesus' teaching. We are one of the crowds in, in, on, the, on the mountaintop who have, have heard Jesus' message of repentance, followed him. Maybe we're just kind of interested in what he has to say, this new rabbi on the scene. Maybe we're one of his few disciples who he has called by name to become fishers of men. In either case, we are first century Jews and we are sitting listening to Jesus speak. And we get all of the dramatic symbolism involved here. We get that it's significant that he's gone to a mountaintop. We get that he is a kind of figure of Moses on the top of the mountain, speaking with God, handing down covenants and commandments. We get this, the rich symbolism here. We get that his message of calling people back to repentance and now he's sitting on top of a mountain. It's all of this makes up this very dramatic, important, rich call back to covenantal faithfulness. This is, this is a call to come back to God. To remember he's made covenant and promises with us. And so all of this is dramatic and important and rich in symbolism. You as a Jew, you get this. And so you're sitting here, you're kind of on the edge of your seat 
waiting to hear what Jesus says next. How is he going to take the covenant of God, the Torah, the law, the prophets, all of God's words, how is he going to bring them to bear for us in this covenant renewal ceremony on top of the mountain? And with all of that expectation and symbolism in your mind, you would have first been a little bit thrown by verses 1 to 12, Jesus begins with his Beatitudes. This is not unusual. Teachers of the day would do this. They all had their set of Beatitudes, the things they believe that you should do if you want to live a fruitful and full and flourishing life. But Jesus' Beatitudes are completely upside down. You remember this? We spent two weeks on this. He throws the world upside down. He gives them a list of Beatitudes that seem so counterintuitive. And so now, as first century Jews, we're kind of thinking, what what is this guy doing? Is Is he bringing some kind of new revolutionary manifesto to us? Is he going to be replacing what we know and what we trust in the Torah, in God's revealed law? Is he going to do away with that and give us this whole new teaching? And I think probably, I imagine Jesus sensing this kind of uncertainty in the crowd. And so he then speaks to them, verse 17 to 18. You should read along with me. He says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That's just code for the Old Testament. Don't think I came to abolish the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill, for I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. And so as first century Jews, we all breathe a sigh of relief. All right, this guy's not completely crazy. He's not, you know, he's not a heretic. Old Testament intact, it all still applies. And then Jesus says, I'm not finished. Verse 19 to 20, Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. At which point, we all say something that's common that my kids say to me. It's two words that's really just made into one word. It's, wait, what? Wait, what? We were were with you on on the preservation of the old covenant, but then Jesus goes and says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember, we're first century Jews, so we don't have 2,000 years of prejudice against the scribes and Pharisees and movies where they're all dressed up like Sauron or someone and like they're the bad evil. No, these are the guys that you respect more than anyone else. 
These are the godly people, the righteous people, the scribes and Pharisees, zealous for the kingdom of God to come. This is the thing that motivates everything they do. Zealous for God's kingdom to come. The scribes and Pharisees believed that if everyone did what God has commanded us to do, then there would be peace on earth. God's kingdom on earth. It's not a bad thought, really. If everyone was just so in tune with God's will and his word and the traditions of the Hebrews built up around that word to augment and strengthen that word, if we could just do all of this and get rid of the sinfulness and rebellion and wickedness, then God's kingdom would come on the earth. And then Jesus says, unless you're more righteous than those guys, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I've had a few walkouts of this church over the years. Not too many, but there have been a few walkouts. Get to some point in the sermon, make some kind of declaration, and sometimes people just leave. The first time I remember the first time, definitely, because I was new. It was 2013. And to be fair, I just ticked over the first hour of this sermon. But it was in Ephesians, and it was on... God's electing love, predestination, all that stuff. And it was the first time that we had talked about it and it was, there was a lot. And anyway, a couple of people objected and stood up and said it was ridiculous. And, which would, was bad enough, except that that was the band leader for the day. And so that was awkward. Imagine Jeremy. Stuff this. had a few walkouts. I imagine a bunch of people walking out in the sermon at this point. Really? You're bringing the kingdom of heaven? I was kind of duped into thinking that maybe I was invited and now you've said only the absolute elite are going to be there. If the kingdom of heaven is only for the absolute religious elite, then what's the point? Normal people need not apply. That's what I imagine happening there on the mountain. Now this is a problem for us. To state the very obvious. This is a problem for us. Now there's a couple of ways you can resolve this problem. Take what Jesus has said and kind of get around it. There's a couple of ways. Uh, I'm going to call them one and two, interpretations. That's clever, right? Wait, just let me, pause for applause. Okay. Interpretations, because they don't, don't really do the work of interpreting what Jesus says. They just sort of circumnavigate it and, and get around to resolving it without really meeting it head on. The first way we do this is what I call the new beats old rule. 
And so this is uh, just, we're just, as a culture, we're programmed to think that new, new is better than old. If we did a word association game, I said new, you'd think good things. If I said old, you'd think, oh, not so good things. That's just the way we're wired. Our whole economy functions on this very principle. For example, I've got a car, it's 15 years old, and it's fine. Like, I push the left pedal, and it lets me change gears, and I push the middle pedal, and it slows down, and I push the right pedal, and it goes fast sometimes really fast, and it's fine, but it's 15 years old, old. So whenever the new model pulls up next to me at the lights, there's just part of me that goes, oh, that'd be nice. I don't know why exactly, but it, it must be better because it's newer. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. We tend to look back on the past and think, if only they were, you know, the new version. Until we become the old version, and then we're like, ah, oh, the old's better. Anyway, but we're youth these days. Um, but this is the way that we do think, and we do this with the Old and New Testament. That's the old. This is the new. The new must be better than the old. Maybe the new just is kind of there to replace the old. The most egregious example of this from church history is a second century guy named Marcion. He was declared to be a heretic, and that's because his idea was Jesus is awesome, everything he said is amazing, so let's just take what he said and get rid of everything else. The Old Testament there's some stuff in there I'm not really big on, and so why don't we just leave that and just have the New Testament? It'll be less to read. It'll be easy to get through it in a year, okay? So, so he actually went through the New Testament and took out all the Old Testament references, which is like half of the New Testament. And his followers went a step closer. So he, some of his followers... They took Matthew 5.17 in our translation, don't think that I came to abolish the law of prophets, I, I do not come to abolish but to fulfill, and they turned it into, I have not come to fulfill the law and the prophets but to abolish them. <laughs> Which is funny, because it's the exact opposite. This is the most egregious example, we would never do that, Right? We'd never be so bold as to tamper with God's words, but we might just ignore all the bits that we think are a little outdated. I think the major way that this sort of seeps into our Christian living, forgetting for a moment the sort of the theology of the matter or the biblical interpretation of the matter, I think this seeps into our life as Christians, and it's, listen, everyone look at me for just for a second, I'm losing you. This is huge right now, and it's killing Christians, killing churches, and you see it most pointedly when you see leaders, Christian leaders fall off that precipice, they don't do the repenting thing, they fall to their death. This happens very often, I think, there's a common thread through this, and it's, and it's when we do this. We take Jesus, who is Lord and Saviour, and we leave the Lord bit out. 
We have Jesus, our Saviour. Jesus is a great Saviour. He forgives me for all of the bad stuff I do. He's the guarantee I have that no matter what I do, no matter how much I fall and rebel, God will always forgive me. Jesus is my Saviour. I'm a bad Christian, but I have a great Saviour. Get that on a sticker. And the product of this is that we continually throw ourselves on God's mercy, but we don't ever do what God says. We take the forgiveness of God and throw away the obedience to God. Jesus, my Savior, He's not my Lord. He doesn't give me commandments. He doesn't demand things from me. He just forgives me when I stuff up. To understand who Jesus is requires a full-orbed image of who he is. He's not just the guy on the cross taking your place. He's also the guy on the throne who's demanding certain things from you. So that's what he says in, he, he says this in John 14. Listen, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. You can't have one without the other. Second way of un- interpreting, un- interpreting. Is, uh, is just to say that Jesus said this. I'm not going to do Marcion. I'm not going to delete it. I'm not going to reword it. I'm just going to say it's not for me. He did say it. He just didn't say it for me. And this actually is a very popular method of reading the New Testament. And because it comes out of America in the last hundred or so years, it means we're soaking it up here. We just live downstream of America over the last hundred years. You go to the Christian bookstore, 90% of the books are written from an American perspective over the last century. And so this became a very popular way of interpreting the Bible. Dispensationalism, to give it its big fancy title. But just that God spoke to different people in different ways and you've got to have this, the, the special map, the schematic to figure out how it all fits together and you've got to have an engineer's degree to put, like, link all the bits together. And, and so, but in the end, you can see, um, depending on which version of this you take, it's about from like Acts 20-something, everything from then on is for us. But everything before then was for other people. Jesus' teaching were for Jews, you know, like before Jesus died and then... We're, we belong to the church age, so we're everything like Acts, you can draw the line wherever you want, it's 4, it's 20, it's 28, whatever, but, but we're after that. We used to have a guy here, nice guy, who totally believed this. And so he would tell me after we said the Lord's Prayer together that we shouldn't say the Lord's Prayer together because the Lord's Prayer isn't for us. There's some very influential people who write books who believe this to be true. Some of them are even good people. Good Christians. So this resolves it pretty well. Like, it was a problem for those guys on the mountain when I imagined myself as first century Jew. Oh, this is a little bit of a conundrum. But now, since I'm not that, phew, it doesn't apply to me. 
which is fine, except if you read what Jesus says. Matthew 28. Everyone takes Matthew 28 to be really important. The Great Commission. It's not even just the Commission. It's the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we're like. That's our bread and butter. That's what motivated the missions movement over the centuries. That's like the mission statement for so many churches. Then you've got the next bit. Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So, it seems like Jesus thought that the stuff that he was teaching was meant to be applied to everyone who had ever become a Christian. So we're back in the conundrum. And you can go and throw out half the books on your bookshelf. How are we meant to understand this? How, what is Jesus' relationship with the Old Testament, with the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. What Jesus' new covenant, how does it relate to the Old Covenant? Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament, how does it work out? I think, look, there's a key here, and it's in verse 17. And verse 17 says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to, say it, fulfill. He came to fulfill. Jesus is. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was a bud and Jesus is the flower. He is the fulfillment. He is the climax. Let me illustrate this, just one example, one of thousands. The Passover is probably the key event in the Old Testament. So let's take the biggest thing we can. The Passover. God, through Moses, delivering his people out of slavery, bondage in Egypt. They're commanded to take a spotless lamb, to kill it, and to spread its blood on the lintels of their doors. That's why we're called Red Door Church. That's the imagery that's sort of, and the symbolism that's in the very fabric of this church. And by doing that, putting their trust in God's sacrifice, God promises them deliverance from the coming judgment. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. The Passover was massive, fundamental to God's salvation plan for the world, and yet Jesus comes and he is the absolute fulfillment of it. That, it turns out, was just the bud. Jesus is the flower. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 5, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He's saying to the church, get rid of the sin that's among you. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Jesus fulfills the Passover. Jesus is the only spotless lamb. Jesus is the spotless lamb that was slain for the sins of his people, to save them from the coming wrath so that all of us who put our trust in that sacrifice of God can be delivered from that which we deserve. He is the Passover lamb. He's the fulfillment of it. Fulfillment, though, doesn't mean replacement. I know this is get, gets a little bit knotty, but it's important to understand. Fulfillment doesn't mean replacement. Because Jesus is the, the, the Passover land, the fulfillment of the Passover, it doesn't then mean say that, that we say, oh, we'll forget about the Passover then. We just, we'll delete that out of the Bible. It's not that important anymore. We've got, we got the new and improved. No, they go together. Just because something is fulfilled doesn't mean you, you get rid of that which foreshadows it. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is the absolutely vital and necessary groundwork out of which Jesus fulfills all things. This is what came to mind for me on Friday, and just see, see if this illustration does anything for you, okay? I'm, so I'm walking through Lerdeder Gorge, and I must have walked that trail, it's the, the gorge loop, up the ridge, over the top, and then back down again. I must have done it 50 times. The first 30 times I did that, the river, Lerdeturk River, was bone dry, just dust. You could see there once was a river there because it's full of river rocks, which are only there if water is flowing, right? It's smooth rocks. But it's absolutely bone dry. And apparently that further upstream they divert water for farming and stuff. And so, <clears throat> and we had low rainfall for the first, you know, 30 times I went there. Just bone dry. If you go there on Friday, like I did, it's full and flowing. Beautiful, crystal clear water. Now, the filling of that riverbed with that beautiful, crystal clear, life-giving water is the fulfillment of the riverbed. Its purpose in being there is fulfilled when it's full and flowing with water, delivering life to all through the gorge, right? The river is the fulfillment of the riverbed. But how stupid would it be? How nonsensical would it be to say, because we've got water now, we're going to get rid of the riverbed? We don't need the foundation anymore. The water is here. That's what we do when we say, because we have the gospel, we don't need the law. Because we have the New Testament, we don't need the old. They go hand in hand together and you don't have fulfillment without foundation. I just came up with that. That was good. You don't have fulfillment without foundation. Now, one more problem. Got a lot of problems to work through today. I wasn't looking forward to this. I don't know if you were regretting coming here as well, but we've got one more problem to solve. There's, 
Here's what's going on here. Jesus is anticipating the next probably, I don't know, 10 weeks of our preaching, which is all going to be his repetition of, you heard it was said, but I tell you. It says in the old covenant this, but I tell you this. Don't commit adultery. I say if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. He's going to say that over and over again, right? And so he's anticipating this, and he wants to get the, the groundwork in now so that we don't say, oh, we'll just throw away the old, right? So this is really important. Now, the last problem we have here is what he said there. The, the reason that half of us walked out on the Sermon on the Mount in verse 20. This is our last problem. Ready? I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So we're still not getting into the kingdom of heaven. We understand a bit more theology, but we're still disbarred. Unless Jesus is getting at something much deeper here than what's on the surface. So, what is righteousness? Unless your righteousness surpasses. You guys remember we did this. We did a definition of righteousness the first kind of three weeks. Here's what I said. Righteousness is whole person, heart deep, behavior that accords with God's nature and will and kingdom. I look at God's nature revealed in Jesus I look at God's will revealed in his word. I look at God's kingdom come in both of those. And then my whole person, heart deep behavior accords with that. That's what righteousness is. That's what it lives to live a righteous life. Now, scribes and Pharisees, right? Zealous, religious elite. How are they doing with the righteousness thing? The, the whole person heart deep thing. How are they doing? I'm going to read you a little bit of what is really more evidence that Jesus isn't just the meek and mild, smoking, lamb cuddling rabbi. This is what he says about scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, Matthew chapter 23. Woe, woe, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat and gulp down a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may be also clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness.
And so he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness goes beyond what you project, unless it comes from a heart, whole body, heart deep, then you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So who enters? Who gets in? Who, who's going to be there? Who enters the kingdom of heaven now and in the age to come? Who enters it? He's already told us. Matthew 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's the poor in spirit who enter the kingdom of heaven. It's those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy and throw themselves on the mercy of God. Here's how I've written it. I'm done. I promise I'm done. I'm just going to read this and then pray for us. The poor in spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing they lack what is required in their own strength, cherish all of God's words, seeking to understand and live by them, and teaching others to do the same. At every step of the journey, they trust Jesus as Saviour and obey Jesus as Lord. Indulge me, I'm going to read it once more. The poor in spirit, make this your prayer. In fact, I'm not even going to pray after this. This is my prayer, Lord, for us. The poor in spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing they lack what is required in their own strength, cherish all of God's words, seeking to understand and live by them and teaching others to do the same. At every step of the journey, they trust Jesus as Saviour and obey Jesus as Lord. Amen. Do you want to continue to pray for us, Suzanne? Thank you.